Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. I'm just back from the uh, fantastic politics festival at uh, King's Place where we heard from a whole range of speakers and we heard passionate cases for a second referendum uh, on Brexit from uh, Chukarumana and then Andrew Adonis, both putting powerful, compelling cases that one way or another Brexit must be stopped and would be stopped by a second referendum, what they call the people's vote. Uh, Chuka spoke just before the march uh, in favour of the people's vote, so-called the second referendum or the third referendum actually. Um, and Andrew Adonis spoke the day after the march. Um, but we also, in a quite cinematic way, during the march, heard from Labour's uh, shadow Brexit secretary, Keir Starmer. The Labour leadership was under some criticism for not attending to the march. You know, they were chanting, where's Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, They weren't chanting, actually, where's Keir Starmer? But I can tell you where he was. He was with me at the Politics Festival. And my guess is much of the audience uh, were taking the Chuka Umana, Andrew Adonis position You've got to stop this second referendum. Why aren't you campaigning for it now? And why aren't you campaigning for the softest of Brexit, the Norway position, single market and all the rest of it? And it's the first time I've heard Keir Starmer speak at length to explain his more expedient position from the front bench. It's very hard on five minutes on the Today programme or eight minutes with the Andrew Marr show to explain, not least when you're being put on the defensive, why aren't you doing this, why aren't you doing that, why is your party as split as the government, aren't you really in the same place as the government, and then thank you very much, and that's it. Um, But over a period of time, and that's the joy of kind of festivals in an era where uh, broadcasting doesn't give much space to uh, uh, politicians and and politics actually there's lots of it but in very small chunks um it was it was really interesting to hear him map out how they have got to where they are the labor leadership um and where he thinks brexit might go next um so we're gonna uh, play the whole of that my chat with him and then the questions uh from the audience and um i hope you agree with me that over a period of time, you get a greater sense of why they are where they are. And um, uh, let's go for it then. I go onto the stage and introduce him, and off we go for the conversation. Here he is, Keir Starmer. Keir, thanks so much for coming along on this hot Saturday. Not at uh, all. Um, it's just outside my constituency. Yeah, indeed. indeed. <laughs> it's not far to travel. Um, if it's all OK with all of you, we'll have a conversation and then open it up for a discussion. 
Um, I'll ask you a bit later about the sort of nitty-gritty of Brexit. But right away, as we're sitting here, there's a big march in London yeah. uh, calling for a second referendum. What is your view on that prospect, the desirability, the feasibility of a second referendum on Brexit? Well, Steve, I mean, as, as you know, the Labour Party has not called for a second referendum or people's vote, um, and neither have we ruled it out. I, I mean, from a personal point of view, um, I understand why um, people are concerned um, about the question of whether, in some shape or form, what comes next shouldn't, as it were, go back to the people, whether it's through a referendum, whether it's through a general election. I understand that. And I think it's driven by a number of things from the discussions I've had. One is, I think people feel pretty profoundly that the last, or the, the referendum in June 2016 was a pretty shabby affair. Um, and that whilst in was pretty closely defined, because we'd been living within for 43 years, out was a blank piece of paper on which people wrote a lot of things, including a lot of lies. And the 30, you know, 350 million for the NHS a week was the whopper, but there were plenty of others. I mean, uh, what was being said then was that Europe would give us the same deal as we've got now because they love us so much. There would be countries around the world queuing up to give us preferential treatment and any trade deals, all of which be done by now. There were lots and lots of things that were said, and I think there's a deep sense of injustice. Um, I do think, though, there are a number of practical problems that worry me. I think that David Cameron was in a fix uh, with his own party when he decided to have a referendum, and I think he gambled the country to get out of the fix. I don't want to repeat that exercise. In other words, because we know it's very, very difficult, I don't want to repeat the exercise of simply gambling again, because everybody who wants to put the question again to the people needs to answer the question, what are you going to do if the answer is the same as last time? Um, and that's why I've spent my time um, trying to think through what does a future relationship with the EU look like, because uh, that question, I think, needs to be answered, which is why I've spent so much time trying to work through um, what that is, because I don't think we can leave that question unanswered. <coughs> and I want to obviously explore that with you. Just one other thing on this. Is there practically time for a second referendum, which is the other just tedious logistical element to it? Um, I mean, we're meant to be out of this thing by the end of March. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is tedious, and it is um, a, a practical question. And I do understand that if emotionally your heart is there, with the, it ought to be decided upon um, by a common vote of some sort. Um, the practicalities are a bit irritating. But we do have to confront them. Um, Article 50 was triggered in March um, of last year, and therefore in March 2019 we leave the EU. Um, I think most people who say there should be a second referendum or a people's vote is saying that should be on the final deal. In other words, you look at the final deal, you decide whether or not um, people think it's good enough. Um, my strong sense is that these negotiations are going so badly and so slowly that we probably won't even know what the transitional arrangement is until about, I don't know, November, December of next year. Uh, of this year, sorry, yeah, of this year, yeah, of this year. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I say this You do wonder. It's pro probably be next year. Probably will we could probably year. maybe having this conversation next year, the way <laughs> things are going. It, it, it is a possibility. Um, but there, there, therefore, you know, it, just the practical reality, all we'll know on a, almost a best-case scenario by December this year is 
um, what the withdrawal agreement is, which is basically how much money might be exchanged, what are we doing about EU citizens, really important things, and what the heads of agreement might be for a new agreement. Now, that's on the best case scenario, because at the moment, there's the, the, the prospect of no deals being resurrected again. But assume best case scenario, so by about you know, nearing Christmas, we might just about have that. Um, if you're going to have the question put again to the people before we actually leave, in the next 12 weeks, which is between about the beginning of January and the end of March, you've got to have some sort of referendum. Um, that seems to me difficult um, to envisage. Um, and, and, and the trouble with it after March of next year is you're out. And if, it doesn't mean you can't have another question, um, but it means that you're not asking people where they want to stay in, you're asking people where they want to go back in. Um, and if you go back in, as everybody here will know, um, you now, if you're going to accede to the EU um, as an accession country, you've got to take the euro. You don't have the opt-outs. Um, you have to be in Schengen, et cetera, et cetera. All of which are things we can discuss, but um, I, 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 for my part, have concentrated on the question, um, what does a future close collaborative relationship with the EU look like, um, rather than the question... Um, is it possible somehow to have a vote again before March of next year, which I think there are massive practical problems with. We'll go back to Brexit, but just a bit about your uh, path to this current, as I said in the intro, absolutely pivotal post in British politics. When you were Director of Public Prosecutions, had you decided in your own mind that you wanted a career in Labour Party politics? Not at that stage. I mean, I, I, I joined the Labour Party when I was a teenager, and I'd been um, in the Labour Party for a very, very long time. I then channeled that um, through the work I did as a human rights lawyer before I became Director of Public Prosecutions. Um, when I was Director of Public Prosecutions, I was essentially running um, a public service, a frontline public service yeah. with 9,000 staff um, as um, a civil servant. Um, and... Um, in that, I saw um, huge cuts going into our public services, including the service that I was running. And I took the view that you could take maybe 5% or so out of a public service, but you couldn't take 20, 25, 30% out. These are the sorts of sums that have come out of our public services and run them in the way that they need to be run. And what drove me into... Um, deciding to stand was this strong sense that the post-war settlement, um, that um, there would be a sort of welfare state with services for those people that needed it was being destroyed before our eyes um, and that we needed to do something to stop that happening um, and have a vision for the future that actually matched the 21st century rather than the 20th century. Yeah, and you see, it's very interesting watching uh, I think the first kind of TV image many people will have had of you would have been reading out rather severe statements <laughs> about Chris Hume, MPs' expenses, and so yeah. on. <laughs> H how did you find it making that leap? It it's something that many people have to do. BBC journalists have gone into politics um, from quite, not senior positions, but quite well-known in some cases. Um, how did you find the leap from that absolute, you know, this is the law, this is a Chris Hume, blah, 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 to actually becoming a politician, an advocate for one side, opposed to all those conservatives? You worked with Theresa yeah. May when you were at, when she was at the Home Office and you were at the DPP. I mean, 
yeah, what was it, it like? It's an extraordinary you... transition because um, as a lawyer, you are used to an environment where arguments have to be built on the evidence. Um, and the rules of the game are set in advance. Um, and when you finally have to resolve an issue, you go before a judge who's independent. Um, and he or she will make a decision. And our judges are really good. And so you're within a, a sort of framework of rationality and rules and evidence. Um, and I have to say, walking in from a sort of court environment into the House of Commons um, was a very, very different experience. And to start with, I mean, I, I was on a bill committee. One of the bill committees, are just as you probably know, um, once the sort of chunky bit of a bill is through on the floor of the House of Commons, it goes into a bill committee, which is where a group of usually about 18 MPs scrutinise the bill line by line and vote on amendments. And when I first started that, within a few months of becoming an MP, I was sort of standing up making the arguments I might have done in court. Um, but at the end of the exercise, on what, do we make this change or don't we make this change, there wasn't a judge saying, well, that's a good argument, that makes sense, you're right. It was a vote. And because we were um, the opposition, we had less MPs in the committee than the Tories. And I lost about 140 votes in a row. <laughs> um, because everything I proposed was simply voted down <laughs> by members of the committee. It was a real lesson. But the other thing, uh, just to share with you, um, is something which happened when I went to the front bench. And it's, it's blindingly obvious now, but it seems very odd at the time, which is if you... I mean, in the Commons, as you know, it's a very adversarial setup. You're absolutely against each other. Most parliaments these days across the world are, are semicircular, and um, you sit in your seats um, and make your case. But in ours, you go into this environment where you're at the dispatch box. And as you stand up from the front green um, bench and step forward to the dispatch box, you're taking only one step forward as you then stand up. Mm. But every friendly face is now behind you. <laughs> and all you've got in front of you is a wall of people yeah. Yeah. who are, in one way or another, trying to make it clear to you that you're talking absolute rubbish <laughs> and or trying to put you off your stride. Um, so it is a very, very odd... It takes a... You know, as with all... I actually found going from private practice, being a sort of uh, individual practitioner doing litigation across the world in courts, to being a civil servant and heading up a, a, a big organisation was a big change in culture. Yeah. You had to learn governance and all sorts of things you don't need. But this was an equally big change as yeah. you go from that sort of um, more rational environment and rules-based environment to something which is anything but rational and rules-based, <laughs> in my experience. I mean, I, I've only been at it for three years. I pinched myself. only three years ago I actually became an MP and somehow somebody shoved about 30 years' worth of change into that three years. <laughs> Talking of which, I mean, as you say, when, when you got into the House of Commons, um, the Labour Party was going through this period of extraordinary turmoil, which you couldn't have anticipated when you stood in uh, no. uh, 2015. Now, some of your colleagues have decided uh, or, or re-decided not to serve in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. You've not only decided to serve, but to serve in this hugely important role. So, so what, why have you gone for that route rather than you know, the sort of Rachel Reeves, Yvette Cooper, back, uh, Chukarumana backbench? Um, every, everybody had to make their mind up, and I'm not critical of anyone for the position that they took. Um, I didn't um, support uh, Jeremy in either the first um, uh, leadership election or, or, or the second. 
But the reason I decided to go into the Shadow Cabinet and do the role that I'm doing is twofold. Firstly, I thought that having gone through the exercise twice of deciding who was to be the leader of the Labour Party and got a clear decision, it was our duty then to support the leader that the members wanted. Um, and secondly, um, and probably more important, I felt that we couldn't just walk past the challenge of Brexit and that it would, in many senses, for me, have felt too self-indulgent to sit there on the back benches. Um, not trying to make a difference. Um, and, you know, there are all sorts of reasons that people come to these decisions. I, I've got young kids. We've got a little girl who's seven and a little boy who's nine. Um, and having campaigned to stay in the EU, voted to stay in the EU, and being, you know, having gone through that awful night when the results were coming through, I sat with them the next morning before they went to school and just looked at their faces and asked myself the question, what sort of world are you going to grow up in? And, and I wasn't talking about technicalities of single market customs, you know, any of that. It was just, <laughs> I mean, because for me, it, it's about what sort of country are we? What's our place on the stage? Do we, are we internationalists anymore? Um, uh, are, you know, the fear was that the country would turn in on itself, become intolerant, etc. And I don't think I could have looked them in the eye years down the line when they asked me, well, what did you actually do to try and shape what came next? And I said, well, I was so fed up with the way the leadership election went that I actually didn't do anything. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, 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 I sort of felt very strongly that it was necessary to serve, and, um, and, I, and I genuinely believe that. And actually, I work very well with Jeremy and his team, and, um, and we've managed to develop and evolve our um, approach to Brexit together. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and you know, and it is very important that we do that as a party, holding together as best we can in different circumstances. Um, on, on that very point, uh, Chuck Romano was here last night. Yeah. And I asked him his view of you, actually. I, and, and I put... <laughs> well, I, <laughs> Do tell. You, you probably know what's coming. And I put the view, um, which many people say to me from within the Labour Party, that you have, have played a heroic role in working with the leadership and moving Labour to its current position, and it might move further. Who knows? Well, I'll ask you. <laughs> I you um, and so that's, that's, that's one. And then I said, or, or do you think basically Keir has, uh, is, is he the hero? Or has he, from your perspective, sold out, given up too easily on the Brexit fundamental debate? Uh, and he should have been much harder and kept open the option of staying in and all the rest of it and advocated a second referendum. And as you know, without hesitation, he said the second. Um, so talk through how you are managing these internal tensions. You've got that wing um, saying, come on, Keir, you can save us here. Um, and, and I know friends of yours say, yeah. please, stop this. Um, and then presumably on the left, you have to woo Jeremy and John McDonnell to a different position. Uh, talk us through what it's your thinking on all of this. Well, I mean, I think we all have to be honest about the situation that we find ourselves in. Um, Chuka and I both voted to have a referendum. Chuka was in the shadow cabinet when the Labour Party's policy changed from not wanting a referendum to wanting one. I, I was a baby. I'd just arrived in Parliament. Mm. But the shadow cabinet that was in place in the summer of 2015, decided to reverse Ed Miliband's position, which is there shouldn't be a referendum, and go for it. Um, and I think impliedly must have decided that they would live with the result. 
Um, that was the then shadow cabinet. And Chuka was part of that. Mm. Mm. Um, and once you've then decided you're going to have a referendum, you obviously go out and campaign. And Chuka played a really important part in the campaigning um, um, and was, was very, very good and persuasive, but not persuasive enough. And so was, you know, I was in that as well. And we did everything that we thought we could. We didn't get the result that we want. But when I went around the country trying to persuade people to vote, I told them it was for real. I, told, I urged them to get to the ballot box. You've got to vote because it's for real. I didn't say, look, it's a giant opinion poll. It doesn't really matter. It probably won't change anything. I said it's for real. And once the result came in, um, I genuinely thought and still think we've got to abide by the result. We've got to abide by the result. Now, um, there is then overlaid on that that, you know, as luck would have it, as things turned out, broadly two-thirds of Labour voters voted to remain, and about a third of Labour voters voted to leave. Um, and then, so far as constituencies are concerned, it's the flip of that. So about two-thirds of Labour MPs represent leave areas, on one vote, and, and one-third represent Remain areas. I represent Remain area. Hoban St Pancras, Camden voted 75% to Remain and would vote uh, again the same way. I have no doubt if it was put to them um, again. In those early weeks and months, many people said the Labour Party's just got to take a decision. Go with the 52% or go with the 48%. Use it as the new political divide. And to some extent, Chuck has done that. And I don't mean to be critical of him, because I, I, I think, you know, a lot of the arguments he's made, been making are very, very powerful. And it's for me to engage in that. And I, I've engaged with all bits of the Labour Party in this. But, the, the, you know, there was a strong plea. Why don't you just give up on the 52% or give up on the 48%? But for the Labour Party to do that would be quite extraordinary. To say to the 52% of people who voted leave, we're now not interested in you. We can't envisage a future that respects your vote. Or to say to the 48%, we can't envisage a future that uh, represents your values, I think would have been a profound mistake. I actually think that what the Prime Minister should have done in October 2016 was to make a speech that brought the country back together. I mean, I think people, everybody remembers the speech that, that the Prime Minister made at the last party conference when the stage fell down and she got the P45 and she had a cough. All of which wasn't actually um, anything to do with yeah. her. Yeah. Good. The most important speech she made was October 2016. It was yeah. her first conference speech. Because up until you know, the referendum asked one question. Do you want to be in the EU or do you want to be out? It didn't ask other questions, which is how might you leave? What would your future relationship look like? A truly inspirational statesperson-like prime minister, I think, would have stood up and said, We've had a referendum, we must respect the result, but it was close. Yeah. And therefore, my job is to respect the result, but to make sure that those who voted the other way can see their future in my interpretation of the result. And therefore, I'm going to leave options on the table. I'm going to go for a close and collaborative relationship that builds on our internationalism and the relationship we've had for hundreds of years with Europe. And in that way, try to make sure that everybody feels that they can be part of the journey that we're going to be going on. Instead, she did something which, for me, uh, I think has always been um, the, the, the sort of the, the problem, which is she said, I interpret the referendum as meaning that control of our borders comes above the economy, 
that we can't be in the single market, we can't be in the customs union, we can't be in any agencies, we can't have anything to do with any courts or any bodies like that. And therefore she swept all the options off the table and went for about the most extreme interpretation of Brexit you could ever have. And I think from that moment on, most of the 48% who feel passionately about this felt that they were being written out of their own future. And I think that has been a huge cause of anxiety. I think for years, those that voted Leave felt they hadn't been listened to, and I absolutely get that. But I think that that speech and everything the Prime Minister's done since then sent, a, sent the wrong message to the 48%. And, a, and, and I go back to the Labour Party. I have profoundly felt that for the Labour Party, if we want to govern, if we want to lead this country, we have got to find something that brings both Please. sides together. And that's why Chipper and I have taken a different approach, because he's taken a very, very 48% approach. And I'm, I don't mean to be critical. But the other thing, Steve, just I think in fairness that I have to yeah. point out, is that um, the perception that the only tension in the Labour Party is somehow between Chukar and some of the people making the arguments he makes, and a sort of Euroscepticism of, of Jeremy is wrong. Sure, sure. Um, and you'll have seen it in recent weeks. I have colleague MPs in leave seats who are genuinely really worried about the positioning of the Labour Party because they think it's too pro-European. Yeah. Um, and we saw that. I mean, on, on some of the specific amendments we've had in, in recent weeks, we had <laughs> 15 Labour MPs in the government lobby yeah. voting against single market propositions. And so um, it's not fair to suggest that um, all of the tension in the Labour Party is, uh, is one-dimensional. Yeah. It is understand. If you're in a leave seat and your majority is small, and then some of our leave seats, the majority has been going down, you're very anxious to represent the views of your constituents. Um, and part of my job, and I don't complain about it, is to make sure that I'm talking to all wings of the Labour Party and trying to make sure that when we do develop or evolve our policy, we do it in, as a group, in one go, together. Um, and when we, in the, in the summer of last year, I set out our position on transition arrangements, that we weren't going to be through with the negotiations by March of next year, therefore we needed to something that preserved um, the single market customs union arrangement we've got for a number of years until we knew what the final destination was. We arrived in one go. Everybody signed up to that. We then moved again on the customs union earlier this year, as you know. Um, and again, the whole of the Labour Party landed in that place together. Uh, we've put a, uh, a single market deal on the table now with shared institutions, shared regulations, common standards. That's an important development of our policy. But it has to be done in a way that keeps everybody on board. I mean, it's not, this is not just party management. If in the end the Labour Party is not all in the same place at the same time, we won't win votes. We've only won one vote. That was on the meaningful vote uh, back in December of last year. And the way we won that, and the only winning combination, is pretty well all Labour MPs in the same lobby at the same time. We, we lost two in the vote before Christmas. Um, and between 12 and 18, Tory rebels coming across the other way. That's the only, only winning comment. So, people will say well, it's all party managers, all yeah. pragmatic. The truth it's, is that, um, you know, it is sometimes easy to make the arguments without regard to what your colleagues are saying in the PLP. But uh, my job 
is to listen to what everybody's saying and genuinely try move our party position. Fine. Uh, on that very point, are you confident that there's a vote on the customs union next month, isn't there? The so-called yeah. either your or a combination of your amendment, Ken Clark and Anna Soubry's thing. Are you fairly hopeful, anyway, that that will be carried, or is it your obviously you've got the Labour Party yeah. behind that one and the, uh, the other opposition parties? But are you worried that the Tory rebels will wobble again and that will that will fall like all the other ones, apart from as you say, the one in December have fallen? Well, um, I think there is a majority in Parliament for a customs union with the EU. Um, I think almost, I, I'd, I'd say the majority know that it's better for the economy, and the majority know that you can't answer the question of how you're going to actually um, enable no hard border in Northern Ireland without it. Um, the Labour Party will vote for it en masse, because yep. we've done it together and we've got a strong position on it. Um, I hope the Tory rebels will vote with us on it. I do understand how difficult it is for them. Dominic Grieve was Attorney General when I was Director of Public Prosecutions for three and a half years, So, and that's a very close working relationship, so I know Dominic very well and have huge respect for him. Um, but this week we saw that um, when push came to shove on the meaningful vote, um, in the end, um, Dominic didn't rebel. In fact, I mean, he laid an amendment, moved an amendment, and then voted against his own amendment, <laughs> which I, I, I didn't factor that bit in. <laughs> but I mean, but I, I, don't, I don't say, I mean, you know, it is very difficult to vote against your government if you're in government. I do understand that. But I do think on these issues, it's very important that where there is a majority in Parliament, that majority finds its voice, and it needs to find its voice on the customs union, it needs to find its voice on the right single market deal, and it absolutely needs to find its voice on the Article 50 deal whenever we see it, because if it's not good enough, we have to vote against it in the national interest. Isn't the brick wall for her, Theresa May, Ireland? I just, uh, John Major was here yesterday. He said he sees no solution to this. And so if there is no solution, she has signed up to a soft border being maintained, as has the rest of the yeah. EU. Doesn't that stop it? Or, or, or will there be a fudge that gets her through that as well? I, I think this is the critical question at the moment, and possibly for many months to come. I had the privilege of working in Northern Ireland for five years yeah. with the policing board. Yeah. Um, on the Good Friday, or some of the Good Friday um, recommendations. One of which was that the Royal Ulster Constabulary would have to cease to exist. And the police service of Northern Ireland would come into existence, which would be more transparent, more human rights compliant, and critically, would have both Catholics and Protestants among its number. The RUC had no Catholics. Um, and therefore, I worked with both communities in Northern Ireland for five years. And I know, as many people in this room will know, that the commitment to no hard border in Northern Ireland is not just about how do you get people or goods over a border, over a line in the road. It's deep in the psyche. It is that, that, that having that open border is the manifestation of peace. Yeah. It, that's why it matters so much. It's not a technical... People talk about cameras and this scheme, that scheme, the other scheme. It's in here. It's in the heart. Yeah. It's absolutely in the heart. Um, and having looked at it from almost every conceivable angle, um, I have concluded that the only way 
you can commit to no hard border in Northern Ireland is by having a customs union between the UK and the EU and by having high-level single market alignment. I don't yeah. think there's another combination that can achieve it. I think if the Prime Minister was showing leadership, she would accept that conclusion and say, let's have a discussion with the EU about how we negotiate that sort of close economic relationship. She can't because her party is utterly divided on it, utterly divided. Um, and this, it's not going to go away. I mean, they've got this peace cabinet planned where they're all going to go to checkers in early <laughs> July and try to solve it. But I don't see how they can. And you can fudge on other things. You can have yeah. heads of agreement that are pretty general. Um, you can have a transition period and argue about when it might end. But in answer to the specific question, which is, what is your concrete proposal to achieve no hard border in Northern Ireland, the Prime Minister can't give an answer. Yeah. And, and, and therefore, we have these fantasy things, Max Facts and uh, yeah. Customs Partnerships, things that, um, you know, as far as Max Facts is concerned, this is technology yet to be invented. I mean, it is real and, and very expensive. Um, and a, a partnership simply doesn't work. Um, and, uh, you know, sooner or later, I, I mean, now we keep saying this, and it, you know, party politics being what it is, people say, well, that's just you. She has, in my view, she has got to face down the ERG group, her extreme right wing, and say, this is the only practical way to deliver on the solemn commitment in Northern Ireland, and I'm going to negotiate it. What a moment that would be. It would be an extraordinary moment because that would then um, allow a different conversation to take place. We, we, we argue about single market customs union models uphill and down dale, and yeah. everybody now has a preferred country or model that <laughs> five of you know, three years ago they've probably never heard of. Um, <laughs> but the, the basic question is pretty straightforward. Do you want a close economic relationship? Because if you do, um, there are tools that are at your disposal to achieve that. Or do you want a distant economic relationship? And you've just got to decide which of the two you want. We in the Labour Party want a close economic relationship and one that answers the question of how you deliver on no hard border in Northern Ireland. The Prime Minister's got to make her mind up and show some leadership on this. You, you worked with her when you were at the DPP yeah. when, and she was at the Home Office. I mean, what she, I, when I was coming in this morning, I was thinking she's, she's the least defined Prime Minister as a public figure in modern times. Now, is that because she's clever and lack of definition is her way of keeping the show on the road? Um, or is what you see what you get with her? What, what's, I mean, you had many face-to-face -face meetings. I mean, I, I, I was appointed as Director of Public Prosecutions by um, Gordon Brown's government in 2008. Yeah. It's a five-year fixed um, term, and 18 months after I was appointed uh, to an independent post, um, in came the coalition, and Theresa May was Home Secretary. So, therefore, I worked with her as Home Secretary for three and a half years. Um, and I respected her, and yeah. I do respect her, and I make that absolutely clear. Um, and um, when she was Home Secretary, she, um, I think, took the wrong course on a number of things. I think the migration targets, the numbers has always been wrong. I think she's had an obsession with that. She's always had an obsession with getting rid of human rights legislation. But on the other hand, um, I saw a Home Secretary who was genuinely concerned about human trafficking, genuinely concerned about violence against women and girls, and prepared to lead from the front on those issues. So um, I haven't sort of spent my time um, saying that um, I didn't respect her. I worked with her. Um, I respected what she was doing on those fronts. Um, but she survived 
um, of the Home Office by sort of rising above problems um, um, and coming down the other side. And I don't think she's been able to do that as Prime no. Minister. And there's a big, there's a big leap between that role and, and being a, what we need at the moment is a leader of leaders. This is this is a turbulent period in our history. Yeah. Huge change. Um, and we need um, a much, much stronger leader. And it's not just on the technicalities. One of the things that frustrates me most about all of our discussions about Brexit, and we're repeating it this morning, is that all of the talk is about what will the deal with the EU look like, and which is a hugely important question. But there's the other side of Brexit. I think that millions of people who voted Leave were sending a message to us which we need to hear, and that is that this political and economic system is not working. Mm. It is not working, and I do not feel that I'm being listened to. That phrase, take back control, was very, very powerful. Mm. Because if you, that phrase was heard by people in different economic circumstances, in different regional circumstances, who answered that question, no, I don't have enough control. I don't think you're listening to what I've been saying to you. I don't think the system works for me. And I think they've got a point. Mm. Inequality, structural inequality uh, in the UK um, is, is, is heading in the wrong direction, has been for years. Um, the way we've set up our economic system has allowed some people to get very, very rich and other people not to. The, the levels of inequality, whether it's income inequality or any other, however you measure it, it is appalling. And no wonder it threw up that result. And the other side of Brexit is, what's the deal that transforms our relationship with the EU into the right corruptive, collaborative relationship for the future? And what's the deal for Britain that transforms Britain in a way that speaks to people um, who were so concerned about that, where they that are. Phrase, that phrase, yeah. That is not, no, that is the other side of Brexit. Getting the right deal, if that's possible, is only half the answer. Yeah. That doesn't achieve, that doesn't answer the real, you know, question that was thrown up on the 23rd of June 2016, which is, what are you going to do to change your country for the better in a really transformative way so that we are less unequal there are better opportunities, there's less regional difference, um, and actually um, we start to address some of the distrust uh, that there is in politics, uh, and, and I feel very strongly we're not doing the second. In order to get both bits, you need a fantastically strong prime minister, capable of uh, bringing both sides of the country together, but actually leading and, say, and, and understanding what the future holds, not what the past delivered. Mm. And I just... I feel very strongly with this, getting a bit carried away now, but I feel very strongly with this Prime Minister that, that she looks backwards. She looks to yesterday for the answers to tomorrow's questions. And for me, that's a big mistake. It, that, this phrase about gaining back control is fascinating, isn't it? Because as you imply in your answer, it could be seized on as a left of centre argument. It's largely so far yeah. been grabbed by Nigel Farage and others to yeah. say, and Boris, you know, control the borders. But you're framing it as a potential left of centre argument yeah. about post-Brexit, what happened. Yeah, I hated the phrase in the campaign, I have to say. I really yeah. hated it. It's very it was powerful, all It was all about, you know, Britain taking back control, almost sort of empire-style stuff, which yeah. was very discomforting in so many ways, and so obviously a misrepresentation not only of history, but of what the future might hold. But I do... I, 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 one of my jobs among... I mean, there's a lot of work in Parliament obviously, to do. There's a lot of work I do in Brussels and with the EU27. But the other aspect of my job that's really important is to be out of London, across the UK, particularly in areas that voted leave, 
um, and genuinely having discussions with people about what it is that we need to do if we are to move forward. And I, I do think, I mean, it's a bit of a generalisation, I accept, that um, many people genuinely felt and feel that um, they are not being heard. Um, and that, that's deep inside. And I, I, I understand that. I mean, it, distant politicians who don't listen to you, um, the casualization of inequality. And, 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 you know, the, the re responsibility for this is shared. But, you know, we, we don't blink at the fact that the top one, two, three percent are very, very, very super rich. Mm. And lots of people uh, are not in that. And it's not just the sheer numbers, it's, it's the relative inequality that I think uh, rankles with people. And we need to understand that. And, and that's why I think the, the phrase take back control was was a Heineken phrase. It, it did get into people in different ways. And once people started ask, asking themselves, do I have enough control over my life? It didn't take long before lots of people said, no, I don't actually. And, and that's the bit that we're not answering. Mm. I mean, look at Parliament. We never discuss this. We, we, there's no legislation other than Brexit legislation going through. That's, that's the other side of Brexit that we need to focus on just as much as yeah. the deal. And I'm not saying the deal isn't important, it's critically important. I spent a lot of time thinking about it um, and um, trying to challenge in such a way that we get the right deal. But if you don't have the other pillar, you're not really answering the huge question that was put there on the 23rd of June 2016. Okay, good point to open it up for a wider discussion. When the lights come on, my, right, lots of hands up, so we'll take... Okay, if we take about three to go, and I'll sure. I, I or, or you can remember them. Uh, let's start <laughs> at the front and then go go to the back. We'll try and get them all all in. Can we have the lights up a bit more? So, thank you, thank you. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm one of a dwindling number of people who are old enough to have lived through the last major war in Europe, and. Uh, if you look back several hundred years, there have been no periods of very long periods when there was not a serious war going on yeah. in Europe somewhere. And the main reason for setting up the European Union was to get away from that situation. That has not been mentioned anywhere in the campaign for the referendum. It's not being mentioned now. It's entirely about economic factors um, and things like that. Um, when okay. are we going to start talking good, about... Uh, good question. Don't, don't answer it yet, but good, good question. Uh, let's go back in fairness. Uh, the guy there in, in the middle, and then we'll come forward again. Thank you. Um, I'm just kind of curious. We seem to have this debate of negotiations happening in Brussels, the debate in Parliament. But the other side of Parliament, we've got the Culture, Media and Sport Committee who are demonstrating serious flaws about the way that the Leave campaign was maintained. Those two things seem to be happening in parallel and not really coming together. And I was just kind of interested in, what is your view yeah. on the work of Damien Collins and how do you think that's going to impact on the call around potentially a second referendum? Thank you. And I think it was at, at, at the front, uh, yeah. And then we'll have another round. Thank you. As the uh, People's March going on today, and I was uh, my daughter is uh, on that, born in the uh, uh, 1988, 
So it would have been around the time of the kind of poll tax uh, yeah. uh, debacle. Now, I'm very struck by what you said about uh, Theresa May's initial conference speech and when she tied her own hands in a way which many people thought was amazing. Mm. And actually, mm. I remember seeing you know, Nigel Farage popping up on the TV saying how delighted he was by the things that she was saying and being just astonished by this. In the end, the Conservatives got themselves out of a bind with the poll tax by changing their Prime Minister and replacing Margaret Thatcher with John Major, who was able to take a different view. The problem for the Conservative Party is if they replace Theresa May, they replace with someone who is even more committed to, that, to the things she said in, uh, in her initial conference speech. So the only alternative, really, is for there to be an election, for the Labour Party to, in some way, lead of the government that emerges from that election, and for that government to be led by a prime minister who is committed to the sorts of things you have said about including the 100%, not either the 48% or the 52%. So my question is, what are the odds? Okay, <laughs> all great questions. Kira, if you could keep your I'll answer keep short, because to get some more questions in. Uh, uh, the, on, on the question of peace, really, really important point. Um, as everybody knows, the, what is now the EU has gone through iterations. The first iteration was a steel and coal community. Um, and that wasn't um, happen chance. That was because it was set up after the war and you needed steel and coal to make bombs. And the idea was there were six countries then um, in this steel and coal community and Germany and France had to be two of them. <laughs> and the idea was that neither Germany nor France would be able to um, develop coal or steel um, on their own and outside of this then union of six. Um, so it started life as much as a peace project as it did an economic project, then morphed on. Um, but what you say is really, in the referendum campaign, I tried to make that argument. I tried to make that argument. Um, and it didn't cut through. And there are, there are problems here. Um, it's the same with Northern Ireland, and that is that yeah. we've now reached a stage where... Um, there aren't that many people who live through that experience yeah. or live through the immediate aftermath of that experience, and therefore it doesn't mean anything. And I don't mean that to belittle it in any way. It's really serious. How do you relive that bit of history? How do we teach that history in such a way that brings... I mean, it, 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 it's linked into so many important things. I mean, Northern Ireland, actually. Um, I feel passionate about Northern Ireland because I worked over there, etc., etc. But, you know, as you go around the country, for people who are under the age of about 40, 45... They were either not born when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, or they were children. Um, and therefore, it just doesn't resonate in the same way. And there's something about living history here which is really important, mm. because otherwise you do make mistakes. It is a fantastic thing that through um, a union of European countries, we have, at least within that union, not had war or conflict. That is a hugely valuable thing and that, 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 that needs to be hardwired into whatever we do next, whatever the new relationship is with the EU. That has to be at the heart of it, just as it was um, when the whole idea was originally configured. Um, on the um, toing and throwing the leaf campaign, I mean, it's a very good question. I do think we need more focus on um, this because more and more evidence is being uncovered as to um, what may or may not have happened with certain funds, with um, certain contacts, etc. Um, the at the moment, I think it's right to say they've got to be uh, investigated robustly and that the investigation should go wherever the evidence takes it. There should be no predetermination of where that takes it. I think what we may uncover as we go down that road is that the teeth, of, the legal teeth available may not be um, sharp enough um, because with a referendum, unlike a, 
um, election of a candidate, there's no candidate to remove at the end of the exercise. And um, so we may need to reflect on the legislation that actually governs all this. But I, I think you're right that there needs to be a brighter torch, if you like, shone on uh, some of that, and we'll take that up. On question three, um, Nigel Farage. I mean, Nigel Farage is really, um, you, know, you know, he's so culpable in this. And you can see him already, in light of the Airbus um, announcement yesterday, running away from his own responsibility. This argument that if you were doing it properly, this wouldn't happen. And you see this with a lot of people who advocated Brexit from the right wing of the Tory party. They didn't have the first idea what they were actually arguing for, and they will take no responsibility for it now. <clears throat> They'll take no responsibility for it now. And that needs to be called out. It needs to be called out. Um, the you know, odds of an election, for briefly? For an election, I mean, uh, uh, all my predictions since I've been an MP about whether it be an election, if so, who will win it, etc., proved to be pretty badly wrong. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I actually <laughs> thought, we'd, I thought we'd win the referendum. Yeah, I thought Trump wouldn't become the um, president of America. I didn't think the Prime Minister would call a snap election Nor after triggering Article 50. Nor did I. And if she did um, call it, I thought she'd probably win it pretty handsomely. So um, <laughs> take everything I say about the future with a pinch of salt. Um, <laughs> But, but I have to say, there has to come a point at which the Prime Minister has to um, resolve the division at the heart of her cabinet. She has successfully kicked the can down the road um, for, for months now, but she is running out of road and something has got to happen. And it's that division that is still there at the very, very heart of this. Every time in Parliament we say we want a meaningful vote, we want a plan, we want impact statements. Um, the whole of the right of the Tory party is to rain down and say, you're handing power to the EU. The thing that hands power to the EU is that they can see very, very well that the government is completely divided on what it wants on Brexit. And so whether that's a general election um, later this year or something else, um, sooner or later that divide has to be confronted. But what we don't want is it confronted in such a way that it leads to an even more right-wing Tory government carrying on in place. That would be the worst of all options. Great, thank you. Let's have some more. Uh, the lady at the back, and then we'll go to this side. Yeah, and then down. Yeah. Thank you very much. Could I turn you to thinking about the second pillar or the second interpretation of take back control, which is the issue of confronting inequality, and explore a bit your view about the thrust of Labour Party policies on that. And some would say that the obsession with renationalisation um, and a host of other policies is actually a kind of a, you talked about Theresa May looking backward for policy solutions. Um, and what some would say, that's exactly what the Labour Party is doing in relation to its, its policies around reducing inequality, ignoring the implications of the fourth industrial revolution and everything that implies yep. about the future of work, the distribution of income. And should we not be developing future-looking policies which really address those realities and their implications for increasing inequality, not diminishing yep. it? Thank you. Uh, uh, someone had hand that, and then we'll go to this side. Yeah. Oh, Sakir, you talked about um, recognising the result and respecting the result of the referendum, but you also mentioned how if we were to try and rejoin the EU... Um, we would have to join the Schengen and the Euro, which clearly the British population is in no place to accept, you know, when you look at opinion polls. Do you not think that given it was such a close referendum, does it not indicate that, in fact, the British people doesn't really know um, what they want from Europe? 
and that when you look at the age gaps of the people, you know, the younger generation, like my generation, um, clearly hugely in favour of staying in Europe, that we're throwing away an opportunity to do this and maybe we should look again at that. Okay, and uh, someone was very keen over that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if the mic could go to the guy. I think it's an alternative take on the first question. Um, I've just spent three weeks traveling around the States looking at Trump's impact on politics there, and he seems to be immensely popular among his base, among white working class uh, voters. And uh, I think they take delight in him uh, giving the system a knock. Um, so the question here is, um, those people who feel they're not being listened to properly, are they looking for policy solutions or are they looking for political reform and change to the actual um, way politics works, and whether it's in parliament or voting reform? Um, and and it's, we seem to be avoiding that question, I think, yeah. and looking more at policy solutions. Do you want to take the first and third together yeah, let me and take, then answer the Brexit one? Let me take those together. I, I, on inequality, um, I completely agree with you that... Um, what we are going to do about inequality needs to focus on what's coming next rather than what's already happened. Um, and I believe that political parties only genuinely win elections well when they've glimpsed the future and they've got an answer to tomorrow's questions. And tomorrow's questions are or include automation um, and the use of digital economy. Um, we are, you know, this, this, this is a revolution that's going on in the workplace, the way people work, uh, the more fractured workplace environment. Um, when I go about my daily tasks, I would quite like it if some of them were automated and done by um, a robot or machine of some sort. That would be great. But it depends who owns the robot. And it depends what I'm supposed to do with my time when the robot is doing my job. Um, and we have to have answers to that. How, how, do we, how does technology help us? Because we all want technology to help us for the future. What a wonderful thing. But what do we do to make sure that that doesn't drive further inequality, doesn't just drive people out of the workplace? What is the meaningful work for people in that environment? How do they share um, the wealth and the proceeds of automation? And they're the really big questions for the future to which I think the Labour Party needs to have bold and radical answers. Nationalisation, um, I've got no problem at all with um, the idea that um, railways and utilities such as water ought to be um, in some form of common ownership. Um, I think there's a, there's a strong feeling amongst people about the sort of basics in life. But that has to be coupled with, in, a, in, in some senses, um, those more difficult questions about what the future holds for inequality. Otherwise, we will drive inequality upon inequality if we don't grip them before... Um, the change. And so I fundamentally agree with that. And let's link that to um, policy and politics, because um, I think we've got to do politics differently. I think within the referendum, and actually it's been with us for a number of years now, is a real distrust of politics, a sense that decisions are simply far too remote, that people can't do anything about their immediate environment, in their village, in their street, in their town, in their city. Um, it's all far too remote, that you just can't get things. It's like being on a permanent call, you know, when someone says, your answer will be, your, your, your call will be answered in whenever. People just feel frustrated, I can't seem to get through. And so we have got to be prepared, I think, to make sure that decisions genuinely move from the sort of centralized role that we've got in Westminster, much, much closer 
to people much closer. And I think we've got to be much more radical about um, how we do that. So part of it is the big policy answers to how you deal with the future in terms of inequality. But I think the way we do it is equally um, important. And we have to be brave enough to say that less power for MPs like me and more power closer to people and decisions closer to people that they can actually influence um, and feel ownership of. Not an easy one, but I'd much rather be having that discussion than some of the discussions we're having at the moment. Um, on, on the question of younger people and the difficulties um, of um, sort of re-entering the EU, on the point of the age gap, I completely accept your point. You know, as a broad proposition, um, younger people are going to have to live with this far longer than the rest of us. And we have to bear that in mind all the way through. It's why we should have had a vote of 16 at the referendum. It's why we should have a vote of 16 for everything, in my view. Um, because um, the views of young people have to be central to this, and we need to, to listen to them uh, in what we do. But um, the, the, the notion that somehow it can just be stopped, I think, has to be tackled head on. I mean, just looking at the politics of the last three weeks, the Tory rebels didn't even vote to give themselves a meaningful vote. Does anybody in this room seriously think they're going to move from that position to stopping Brexit in the next nine months? And if, if, if that, you know, you know, there's a long, you know, we've got to be realistic about where people are on this. Um, and what is achievable, and, and that's why, you know, and I know it frustrates some people. In the end, I do firmly believe we've got to do the heavy lifting on answering the question: What does a different relationship with the EU look like? Not membership, but a close, collaborative, cooperative, progressive partnership that can endure. Because what we can't do is lose everything that we've had in the last 45 years of membership, but actually longer than that. We've traded with Europe, we've got a shared history, shared values that go way beyond EU membership. That has to be the, the sort of the nuts and bolts and the framework for whatever relationship we have going forward. And that's why in the end, whichever way I look at it, I'm driven back to saying you've got to do the hard work here on what a new relationship looks like. You can't just park that or ignore that. And I think there's a huge danger in that. Uh, we've got time for one more round. Is anyone else uh, uh, there? And there, to speed it up next. next. Thank you, Sikir. Uh, in 2017, Labour won its uh, best results in an election since, I believe, 2001 in terms of vote share on a what was generally regarded as quite a left-wing manifesto. Of course, in 2001, it ran what could reasonably be described as a centrist manifesto or perhaps even a centre-right manifesto. What can you learn from that about the way that the Labour Party wins elections? Is it by moving towards the centre and being pragmatic like Blair? Or is it by being honestly and openly left-wing like Jeremy Corbyn? Good question. Uh, could you move the mic along uh, to two spaces? Thank you. Uh, hello. Um, you've spoken strongly about the need for a leader of leaders, and you've got a very distinctive experience of working with senior people in the Tory government, as well as senior people in the Labour Party. And so you've got an idea of some of the candidates, maybe. Um, you know, who, 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 if Theresa May goes, could be that leader of leaders? <laughs> These are good questions. For the, uh, any, anyone on this side? No? no? Okay. Uh, one more. Uh, the lady there, uh, right in the back row. And, 
you alluded to some of the ways you do your work. For example, you go out and you talk to people about planning and developing your ideas so that you could all vote together. Um, do you actually meet with David Davis to, act, to, to try and hear what he has to report back? Do you go to the countries that are part of the part of the EU? And then we all talk about whether or not we want to go back. Do they actually want us back? <laughs> good question. So, how do you win elections? Three very good questions. Um, in my view, you win, you win elections by um, glimpsing or understanding the future and having real radical answers to what lies ahead. And, I mean, that's, that's so true of the Labour Party. Um, and I don't think there's one policy position because different times in history throw up massively different challenges. We've won big only three times ever, really, 1945. And you had a government on the back of the beverage report, uh, an incoming government on the back of the beverage report, that said things are going to change. After everything that's happened, things are going to change and come with us on that journey because we're going to change it. And people said, yes, I'm going to vote for that. It was radical. It was progressive. Um, in the 60s, Harold Wilson said technology is changing. The white heat of technology, it's not going to be the same. Tomorrow is different. Um, and people came with that. And in 1997, Tony Blair said the, the future is different. You're on the back of um, a, a Thatcherite um, government and the future needs to be different and combine different issues in a different way. And people went with that. And if and when we win again, it will be because we can sketch out the future in the same way and persuade people to come on a journey with us. Because politics is about trust. People know what they want, and they want to trust you to deliver it, and they need to know that they can trust you with tomorrow. Um, I think the 2017 manifesto was successful because it had hope in it. It had hope in an era where there wasn't and isn't much hope. And I think it's the basis of what we do next. It's the right answer because it begins to address the question, how do you actually transform um, the political and economic system that we're in a way that works better for people? And that's why we need to build on that manifesto. But in the end, um, the winning formula is not to sort of um, argue um, for fixed positions on some continuum. It's to really understand the, p the point in history you're in and what you need to do to transform lives. Um, and to change lives. Um, on um, <laughs> who, who, on the go who amongst the Tories would we want? Um, <laughs> I, I can't begin to answer that. But uh, what I don't want is one of the more extreme figures on the right of the Tory party, because I feel very strongly that that small group, that tail is wagging the dog. They're wagging the dog in Parliament because the Prime Minister won't face them down, and the last thing we want is them wagging the the country, um, and therefore um, we must avoid that at all odds. Um, on David Davis, uh, yeah, I do meet David Davis, um, and um, we obviously are against each other in Parliament across the dispatch boxes, if you like, um, but I also talk to him from time to time about what's happening across Europe. Um, but my job is to do my own work, um, which is why I spend a lot of time talking to the Commission, uh, the Council and the Parliament in Brussels to understand um, the issues on the other side of the negotiating table. Um, but also, and vitally importantly, I spend a lot of time talking to the EU27, to their governments, to their political leaders, um, to understand 
where they're coming from, what their concerns are, to try and find shared ground um, and to ensure that when we, the Labour Party, um, put a proposition on the table, it's something which is workable, doable. Um, and um, it's, it's critically important, I think, from those points of view that we continue to do that. And I do that both here with um, any political leaders that are visiting and ambassadors, but out in the EU 27 countries that I've been visiting. And, and other countries. I mean, the, the, there's been a lot of attention, as you know, on the, on the EEA Norway model. We voted on it the other day in Parliament. Um, of the two countries that are outside of the EU, the closest to are probably Norway. And by Norway, I mean Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein are in a group and Switzerland. Um, and so I went for four days to each of those countries to do a deep dive into understanding how their model works uh, to test for myself whether that would work for the UK or whether bits of it would work uh, for, the, for, for the UK. I think the general readout is most of the EU27 are, very, are genuinely very sad to see the result of the referendum and would much prefer to see us in a, in a close relationship going forward partly because historically we've been strong partners of them, as I say, shared history, shared values, partly because the geopolitics of this is important. They can see what's happening with Trump um, and on the other side with Russia. Broadly speaking, this is broad brush stuff, since the Second World War, America has been supportive of a European project, um, no longer necessarily the case. Um, and I think it's really important, in addition to the details of any deal, that we place ourselves firmly in the European framework of values and morals and ways of operating on the international stage. And they want us in that place for understandable reasons, because that is our proper place. Um, and and you know, every day when you open the newspaper and see some of the latest things that Trump is saying, it just reinforces the feeling with me that that is, that is our moral place in the world, um, pulling our weight and being part of the collective in whatever way we can, um, that is built for me on the principles that fell out of the awfulness of the Holocaust and the Second World War. Okay, thank you, uh, and thank you all for brilliant uh, questions. Before, before we go, I must ask you, I mean, probably people in the audience agree, you know, I, I've become completely obsessed with Brexit. I bet some people in the audience can't think of anything else. Matthew Paris wrote that it's driven him crazy. I know <laughs> other political journalists have gone crazy over Brexit. Um, it must be 500 times more intense for you. I mean, do you ever get a chance to relax? Do you ever not think about Brexit in, 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 in this period that we're going through? I do two things. Um, I, I play football every week. Um, that must be great. And that is just great. Also, as I've said before, I've got young kids. Um, and they think most of this is unimportant. And I'm there to be their dad. Um, and therefore, if, if we, we live in Kentish Town, if we're going out with the kids, people come up to me now and start talking normally about Brexit. Um, and they, the kids say to me, we're not coming with you if you're just going to boff on. <laughs> so we have, to, we have to have a sort of rule and I'm not going to boff on. And it's brilliant because they, they they, they're at an age where they really don't give a hoot what I do for a living. Their question they ask is, why aren't you spending more time with me? Why aren't you doing what I want to do? And that is brilliant. Yeah. It is brilliant. Um, and, and it is equally, as everyone with kids will know, it's equally demanding. Um, but it is a brilliant... <laughs> it's a if you've got kids who different. really just want you with them as their dad, it is a brilliant way of not Counter thinking about Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, before we thank uh, Keir, uh, uh, we've got, uh, talking about Brexit, the evangelist from the Labour Party, Andrew Donis, tomorrow morning at 10.30, I think. Uh, 
uh, on some of the issues about the left and the future. Paul Mason is here at half past seven tonight, I think, who's quite interesting about future policy. He is looking ahead. You might disagree with him, but he's quite interesting. Um, and loads of others during the afternoon here. So I hope you'll stay with us and enjoy the rest of the day here and tomorrow. But for now, I think Keir, who's who came at very short notice and has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much Thanks for giving me your time. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. That was Keir Starmer live at King's Place. I think Thank it's interesting the you. arguments he puts against Labour now uh, campaigning for a referendum and trying to get it uh, through the House of Commons and the logistics of time and how there isn't probably going to be enough time for a referendum. Although I put this to Andrew Donis the next day at the festival and he said that he had spoken, he obviously couldn't say who, which ones, to European leaders who had told Andrew Adonis that um, they could get an extension to the Article 50 time in order to have a referendum. And he added uh, that he knows Keir Starmer knows that too, because he's had conversations with the same European leaders. This uh, Brexit drama is, as I think I said last week, it's like a Netflix box set. No one knows how it's going to end. We probably won't have any clearer idea when um, I'm taking my one-man show, uh, Rock and Roll Politics, to the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, so if you're up there for the last two weeks of the festival, I'm on every day and doing a different show every day. So if you book for all 14, it'll be different every time. Uh, and that's, of course, the last couple of weeks in August. So hope to see you there. And who knows where we'll be with Brexit or anything else next week. Thanks for listening. Do subscribe, do add a rating and see you soon.